Emergency Preparedness in Nursing Homes, a conversation with Deborah Wright. Good afternoon, and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19-related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared toward long-term care and skilled nursing facilities, but we encourage everyone who is interested to attend. Today, we will be talking about emergency preparedness for nursing homes. My name is Kathy Caudill. I'm a communication specialist with Quality Insights, and now I'd like to introduce our guest today, Deborah Wright. Deborah is a quality improvement specialist at Quality Insights. She recently joined our team after being in the long-term care industry for more than 30 years. She has a wealth of experience in long-term care nursing and management, ranging from certified nursing assistant to vice president of healthcare operations. She's most passionate when working with the MDS process and quality improvement. Deborah, welcome, and thank you for joining us today to talk about emergency planning. Thanks, Kathy. And before we jump in with our first question, I know that you shared a few links with me to share with our listeners today. I will be dropping those links into the chat as we go along. And for those who are listening to a a recording of this webinar later, either in a podcast or on our YouTube channel, I will have the links in the episode description of that episode. And with that said, we can get started with our first question. So Deborah, what is uh, CMS's emergency preparedness and when did it start? Okay, so for this Wednesday afternoon, we'll start and we'll start with going down for a little history lesson for the day. So in September of 2016, Um, The Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, or CMS, published the emergency preparedness requirements for Medicare and Medicaid participating providers and their suppliers. This guidance was designed to cover all 17 sectors of the U.S. healthcare system, one of which included long-term care facilities. The rule required that nursing homes demonstrate that they are doing risk assessments, writing appropriate plans, establishing policies and procedures, and training and testing their plans with staff and partners in the community. And all of that was to be implemented um, in November of 2017. We saw this change come after Hurricane Harvey and Irma. If you remember all of the the news um, media that followed those two hurricanes, um, one of which was during the Irma hurricane in Florida, when they had a number of residents that had passed away because the facilities had lost power, but yet there were hospitals just a few feet away from those that had emergency power up and running, but none of the the facilities residents were transported to, to the hospitals that could meet their medical needs that required the electricity. So then in 2019, the Burden Reduction Final Rule released updated interpretive guidelines, which made revisions to the Emergency Preparedness Plan requirements. Most of those changes didn't really affect the nursing home industry, but the one big area that did was the addition of expanding guidance related to the emerging infectious diseases or sometimes referred to as the EIDs to the definition of an all-hazards approach. This in part back then was due to the events of the Ebola virus and Zika. Now, of course, we have the never ending topic of COVID-19. Recently um, in March of 2021, CMS again released revised guidance to the surveyors under the reference number QSO 21-2015. 
this updated guidance was to be implemented by April 16th back in 2021 and included all the revisions to Appendix Z in the State Operations Manual, which expanded the interpretive guidelines to include best practices and planning considerations for preventing and managing these EIDs or emerging infectious diseases, especially since the onset of COVID-19. Keep in mind though, that many of those um, expanded guidances surrounding the infectious diseases are considered recommendations and best practices, but not necessarily requirements. Backing up real quick, you mentioned an all hazards approach. Uh, what do you mean by that? That's a good question, Kathy. So I'm just gonna read um, right from CMS how they define an all hazard approach. And they define it as an integrated approach to emergency preparedness planning that focuses on capacities and capabilities that are critical to the preparedness for a full spectrum of emergencies or disasters. These could include internal emergencies, man-made emergencies or both, as well as natural disasters. This approach is specific to the location of the provider or supplier and considers the particular types of hazards most likely to incur in that area. These may include, but obviously not limited to, care-related emergencies, equipment and power failures, interruptions in, commun in communications, including cyber attacks or loss of partial or all power to a facility, um, interruptions in normal supply of essentials, such as as food and water, and now, as we have been seeing way too often, those emergent infectious diseases such as COVID. Um, especially now for nursing homes, this also looks at the facility's accountability for missing residents. So pretty much anything that can disrupt a facility's normal working day or operations would be and should be included in the facility's emergency preparedness plan. So that leads into my next question. What needs to be included in a facility's emergency preparedness plan? So yeah, there, there are four core elements of the emergency preparedness program. So um, we can just talk about those four here for a little bit. First, there's the risk assessment and planning. All providers must develop an emergency plan using the all hazards approach based on the completed risk assessment. You'll need to plan and identify in advance essential functions and who's responsible in each type of crisis. And then once you do that risk assessment and it's completed and the initial emergency preparedness is created, facilities will need to review and update that risk assessment and plan at least annually. There's multiple risk assessment tools out there that can help facilities navigate through this. Um, one that I found that has some really great resources is Pathway Health. And, you know, a lot of times if you just request their information, um, they're willing to share that with facilities and help them. And um, we'll put that link in the chat there for you to, to see where their, their website is. Then there's the policies and procedures. These need to be developed based on your facility's emergency plan and risk assessment. So once you do that risk assessment and you identify what areas and hazards are higher for your facility, you want to create those policies and procedures. But remember that there's a fine balance between how much is too much and how little is too little. 
Um, you want to make sure that your policies are broad enough to cover multiple scenarios, but not too broad that someone wouldn't know what to do. But at the same time, you don't want to narrow your policy into such a fine detail that you have no room to breathe without creating a new policy. So you want to keep in mind that these policies and procedures must address issues, including subsistence or maintaining and supporting the facility at a minimum level. Also, your evacuation plans, your procedures of sheltering in place, and how are you going to track your residents and staff during the emergency? As well, with all of your policy and procedures, these need to be reviewed and, and updated at least annually. Then you have the communication plan, and this, this is starting to become one of the areas that you would think would be the, the easiest, but it's um, starting to be the most difficult for fill facilities to um, figure out and manage. So you need to develop these in accordance with both your state and federal laws. Your communication plan needs to explain how are you going to coordinate within your resident's care within the facility across all healthcare providers and with your state and or local public health departments, as well as your emergency management systems. The communication plan is critical so that your facility can continue to operate efficiently and effectively. But as we all know, in some situations, this can be very difficult to accomplish. Um, you want to look at example, when your facility loses internet connection and your EMR goes down, the world is ending, right? By the time you decide to print off those paper Mars, typically the internet has been restored. But what if it isn't? What if you lost power and internet and you had no idea when it would be restored? What if you lost cell coverage? Would you still have a means to communicate with the outside world? Would you still be able to administer medications to your residents? Would you be able to contact the physicians, the families, emergency personnel? Most of our information is now stored within our electronic records. Would you have the necessary information to send another healthcare facility if you needed to transfer your residents for further care. As the healthcare facility, we're expected to have primary and alternate or backup means for communication with federal, state, tribal, regional, and local emergency management agencies. So we can't rely on just our phone system anymore. It's, we need to think outside the box. We need to talk with our local EMSs or healthcare coalitions. Maybe we need to invest into a radios or shortwave transmitters. Whatever method your facility decides to do, you need to make sure that it can be utilized not only in your facility, but outside of your facility as well. Then lastly, we have the last core element is the training and testing program. This is probably one of the most critical once you have developed your emergency plan, because once you have that plan developed, all staff should have training on those policies and procedures. They need to be able to demonstrate their knowledge of your emergency procedures. This area needs to explain how are you going to train your staff and how are you going to test your plan. That, that's the most important thing in this, this core element is training the staff and then testing that training. Um, CMS has a great tool out there. It's called the Healthcare Provider After Action Improvement Plan. Um, it kind of reminded me of those forms that you have after you do a fire drill. It explains 
you know, every, all the events leading up to the, to the um, drill and then everything that went well and didn't go well during the drill and how are you going to work on correct, correcting those things. So you want to make sure um, that you're having those disaster drills. You're participating in your local EMS disaster drills. You're doing the tabletop exercises. And you also want to make sure that you're including those frontline staff. Those are the ones that are on in the evenings, on the weekends, because we all know if something's going to happen, it's not going to happen on day shift, Monday through Friday. It's going to happen when your, your staff that's there need to be able to respond to that drill without the leadership present. So it's important to make sure all your staff know what to do. What kind of deficiencies could a facility see if they don't follow the updated emergency preparedness guidance? It's another great question, Kathy. Um, the biggest area would be the lack of development and reviewing and following of the facility's emergency preparedness plan. And I think that this would probably fall under FTAG 838, the facility assessment. Um, under this tag, it states that the facility must conduct and document a facility-wide assessment to determine what resources are necessary to care for its residents competently during both day-to-day -day operations as well as emergencies. The facility must review and update the assessment as necessary and at least annually. The facility must also review and update the assessment whenever there is or the facility plans for any changes that, that would require a substantial modification to any part of the assessment. Also, as we talked about, um, skilled nursing facilities have that added layer that they need to cover, and that's the issue of being able to account for missing residents. So if you have an elopement and the surveyors are looking at your emergency plan, you potentially could be looking at the deficiency at F689 under accidents. But then also, as we like to say in the nursing home world, you know, you could be double tagged under the F38 for their facility assessment. If the idea of an emergency preparedness is new to some of you, or if you want to make sure that you've covered all the necessary elements, CMS has a great tool out there called the Emergency Preparedness for Every Emergency, and it's kind of a checklist that gives you a recommended tool for effective state agency planning. Um, I'd print that off and really work through it and see what do you already have in place and what are the next steps that you need to take um, to ensure that you have met all the guidelines. Is there any formal training that nursing homes can participate in to meet the emergency preparedness training requirements? Yes and no. Um, so CMS collaborated with, um, you'll see the, the acronym is ASPE Tracy, which stands for um, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Responses, Technical Resources and Assistance Center and the Information Exchange. There's also great resources on the CMS website to help facilities develop their emergency plan and training. And I really encourage facilities to look at these sites because they have a lot of great resources that can be utilized. So see, and then CMS also released um, free training for emergency preparedness for basic surveyor training, which can be accessed on the Quality Safety and Educational Portal or QCEP as some people call it. it can be accessed 24 seven. 
it's a great training for leadership and staff development to participate in. But when you're really doing that training for your staff, you want to make sure that the frontline staff have more facility-specific information. All right. So if you want to contact Deborah directly, you can reach her at 1-800-642-8686 and enter extension 7636. You can also email her at dwright, that's D-W-R-I-G-H-T, at qualityinsights.org. And you can check out our other interviews by visiting qualityinsights.org slash QIN slash multimedia. That's qualityinsights.org slash QIN slash multimedia. Deborah, thank you for joining us today. Sure, thank you, Kathy.